Welcome to the Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to episode four of The Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison, naturopathic doctor with over 20 years of clinical practice supporting folks with mental health and neurological challenges live healthy lives. And thanks for being here. This is part three of our three-part series on neurological reserve. And I wanted to start today with a concept that you need to know to effectively help your brain through any stage of life. And it relates to what we are talking about today intimately and what we will talk about throughout the entire podcast. This is a rule, and so I want you to pay attention because this is a rule you need to know. Your brain repairs and maintains the pathways, neurons, and systems that you use. It's that simple. There's no shortcuts. You have to use certain neurological networks, certain knowledge banks, certain skill sets, or your brain will start to bypass them during its regular repair and maintenance work. This is, like many systems in the body, this is a use it or lose it situation. So let's say you want to get better at balance. You need to regularly do things that challenge your balance, or you're going to actually get worse at balance. And we see this in the aging population across the board. Balance is one of the things that we don't challenge very much when we're sitting down all day at a desk job. We start to lose that skill. Let's say you want to learn and retain something new, some new factoid that you find fascinating or some new knowledge set that you want. It's not a one and done. You need to go back in and repeat this. We all know this if we've gone to any kind of schooling, which I'm assuming all of you have, that you don't just learn it the first time you sit in the classroom. You got to repeat it and repeat it in order for your brain to decide this is important enough that I'm going to retain this and I'm going to maintain and repair this neuron and this new system in order to keep this accessible for you because you clearly need it. This is not to say that we don't develop some skills that we can return to and re-enliven. The best example is probably one you might already be thinking of, which is when you learn to ride a bike and you get to that point where you can balance and go forward, that exhilarating experience as a child of learning to ride a bike. And when you finally get the neural pathways to set that whole system seamlessly in place and you can ride that bike, if you keep riding that bike, you will get better and better at riding a bike. But let's say you take 10 years off of riding a bike you're going to find that you've gone back quite a bit in terms of your skill set. It'll be easier for you to relearn bike riding because you do have the vestiges of that system in your brain, but your brain hasn't been maintaining it. So you actually have to put the effort in to relearn a lot of how to ride a bike. So this use it or lose it rule plays a really big role in building the reserve we are talking about today. So you recall that this is part three of our three-part series on neurological reserve. 
And you'll also recall that there are two halves to neurological reserve, if you've been following along. And last time we were talking about brain reserve. And today we are talking about cognitive reserve. Brain reserve, just to go back and repeat a bit, you'll recall in episode three that brain reserve is about the volume and number of cells in your brains. And we talked about how protecting the brain and the brain cells, and then also feeding the brain with nutrition to support the brain is essentially supporting the volume and number of cells in your brain. So brain reserve support, a lot of it comes down to what you feed your brain and how you protect your brain. Cognitive reserve is about the connections between those cells. So instead of the volume and number of cells, we are now talking about the connections that neurons make to other neurons, which is part of how we learn. This is based on how we use our brains. And as you've surmised, how we use our brains makes a difference in how our brains are built and maintained. Let's start with a definition. There are a few different definitions out there, and this is one that I've collated based on a bunch of them, because I think this is what best reflects the entire concept, or at least the entire concept, for the purposes of this podcast. Cognitive reserve is the brain's thinking capacity, which is based upon the number and the health of the connections between the neurons in the brain. It is this thinking capacity that allows one to improvise and to use different pathways to perform a cognitive task. Little wordy, but essentially, cognitive reserve is about how we use our brains over our lifetimes. Again, that use it or lose it philosophy or fact. And the more diversity of use, the more pathways our brain has to perform a task. It's kind of like if you're going on a trip, there's the main highway that'll get you from, let's say, Vancouver to Coquitlam, to do a Canadian analogy. That's one way to get there. And it's the fastest way, it's the most efficient way. And so people are going to go that way most of the time. But there are these other ways to get there that are little side trips, little side journeys that will eventually get you to Coquitlam from Vancouver. It just takes a little bit of a different route, a more scenic route. So the people who have really good cognitive reserve, they have a density of these side routes. They have likely a really well-established main route from one neuron or one set of, let's call it systems of thought to another. But they also, because they've just used their brain so much, they've built all these other side routes that can get them to the same place and it might take a little bit longer, but they'll get there. So brain reserve, you know, you've got your number of cells, the volume of cells. When we talk about cognitive reserve, we're talking about this density of interconnectivity between the brain cells. We have lots of ways that we can increase and support and maintain those connections and pathways. In the NUN study, it shows up in a few different ways, but I'm gonna highlight a couple things So let's go back to the NUN study and just quickly review. It's a cohort of just under 700 Catholic nuns, 678, and they generously agreed to donate their brains and their life histories 
and a whole bunch of other stuff to research. They provided the researchers with the opportunity to look not just at their brains after they died, but also recurrent neurocognitive testing every year that the study was going on and that they were alive for that part of the study. And then also just all the history that was in the convent's databases. And these nuns are an interesting data set because they're all quite similar. They're all female. They live similar lifestyles. None of them had children. They're not really big alcohol drinkers or smokers. And so that also made them helpful to study because it gets rid of a lot of variables from the data set or the group that researchers are looking at. And I'll keep coming back to this, but this is the last time in a while that we will talk about this. But again, we're going to talk about that concept of asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease, which is something that was found in the Nun study, and it's been found in other dementia studies, where they find that in life, people who are cognitively intact will actually, after death, show that they had active Alzheimer's disease pathologies going on in their brains. And it's a big holy cow moment, of course, because we want to understand, well, why are these people not showing symptoms, whereas other people with the same level of pathology are? These are, the, as we call them, the positive deviants. So they have some sort of resistance. Even though they have this pathology going on, they're resistant to it to the extent that they actually don't show any symptoms that would indicate that they had that problem going on. And so these folks were found in the NUN study. And the NUN study, as I mentioned, is ongoing. And in 2015, a researcher named Ayakono and his colleagues published some findings from reviewing 523 subjects of the NUN study. And what they wanted to determine was, is there a difference in education levels or in specific genotype status between the NUNs that had Alzheimer dementia pathology but preserved cognition status, so these are the asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease patients, and those with pathology and Alzheimer disease symptoms in life. So we could think of one group as the preserved cognition group and one group with the impaired cognition going on. But before I go there, I just want to mention one thing about this study that I found so interesting and I have to share because it's it's really interesting. How common is asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease? Well, I'm going to quote right from the study here. These are the researchers' words in their discussion of the research. How common is asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease? In our series, out of 24 cognitively preserved subjects, so these are controls and the asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease patients, so in our series, out of 24 cognitively preserved subjects older than 85 years of age, 54% showed severe levels of Alzheimer's disease pathology but unimpaired cognition. 54%. That's the majority. I mean, what does that mean to you, to me? It means that these positive deviant nuns, the ones that were doing well, were actually the majority of these 85-plus-year-old nuns with preserved cognition, that 54% of them were actually having Alzheimer's disease pathology going on. So it wasn't rare at all. It was common. And I've mentioned before that these findings are common in these studies. 
But that's how common it was in this study. And before I go on, I just do want to highlight that this study is hard to extrapolate broadly from because we're not all nuns. We are not all female. We are not all people who haven't had children in our lives. Most of us are not nuns. It might be something specific about nuns that increases the likelihood that they're going to have asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease, so that they're going to be these positive deviants. It's hopeful. I think one of the big goals I have at the beginning with this podcast is just to ignite the flame of hope and inspiration in all of you out there that this is attainable. It's not some rare unicorn that only a few people in the world are going to be able to age well without a challenge to their brains. There's some hints through the research. There's some really strong trend lines that tell us there's things that just seem to set us up for success. So back to Iacono's 2015 findings, in terms of education, they found a really strong correlation between higher education and asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease versus the folks who had symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. And in particular, the strongest correlations were found with the nuns who had a master's level of education or higher. So overall, in fact, if you split that cohort that they looked at into folks with impaired cognition, so these were the people with mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease, and the folks with preserved cognition, so these are the people with no pathology on autopsy or pathology, but no problems showing up in their cognitive exams during life. This pattern held true. It was a remarkable difference. And you can see a really big shift in the data at this master's education level or higher. The normal controls and the asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease folks, over 60% of these nuns had attained a master's or higher levels of degree of education. Whereas those who experienced mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease in life were 33% likely to have attained a master's degree or higher level of education. So you're probably picking up on something else here, which is that there's no absolutes. There are nuns who were highly educated that still went on to develop cognitive impairment, that still went on to develop Alzheimer's dementia. And in this data, the mild cognitive impairment group 60% of them had a bachelor's degree. So what's going on here? Well, the most important thing to say is that this is complex and there isn't going to be just one thing that guarantees a successful cognitive or brain aging. And it's just one study. At the same time, it's really important to acknowledge that there is a strong trend line through the research to show a really significant protective effect of education on late-age cognition. This follows the rule that I'll repeat over and over again, which is use it or lose it. Or maybe a really nerdy way to say that would be what you use, you myelinate. <laughs> or what you use, you repair and maintain. Any of those work. We'll dig further into this and other research on brain aging on future episodes. But now, as folks who are following along know that there's a loop I haven't closed, which is about this one amazing thing in the Nun study, which was the 200 personal biographies 
that they had of some of the study subjects that were written when these nuns were applying to join the convent. So these ended up being a treasure trove of information, an unexpected gift for Dr. Snowden and his colleagues because they found in there something that they could analyze. They looked at these biographies that were written when these nuns were 18 to 22. I think it was a mean age of 22 years of age. And what they found was they could analyze them for something called idea density. Idea density, just to give you a definition, is the number of expressed propositions divided by the number of words. I've seen some other definitions that say the number of expressed ideas divided by the number of words. Essentially, a sentence with a high idea density will manage to communicate a high amount of ideas with a minimal number of words. So what goes into idea density? What makes someone be able to produce writing or speech that's high in idea density? I think there's a little bit of a mystery around this, and it may reflect early life literacy, for instance. We don't fully know. But in this study, looking at these 200 autobiographies, they looked later at the cognitive function of these nuns and the pathology, the neuropathology measured in these nuns after they died. And they did find a correlation between low idea density in these autobiographies and low cognitive test scores later in life. So it was a measure of the brain function in late teens, early 20s that ends up being correlated with or had some predictive value of whether or not this person was to develop cognitive impairment in their elder years. It's an interesting concept. In my household, this discussion eventually led to curiosity about idea density and great works of literature. And I did some digging and found someone else who's really curious about this as well. He's a professor of educational psychology and he ran a monologue from The Life and Death of King John, uh, a Shakespeare play, through a computer program that is now in existence that can calculate idea density. And yes, the bard had an incredible idea density. Apparently 0.583 is a very high idea density in writing. And of course, now I'm really curious, of course, what would my idea density be if I were to find an old essay I wrote in university? And also super curious what a modern-day linguistic genius like MF Doom or Kendrick Lamar would clock in at. I love rap. Other researchers are now investigating if writing or speaking samples could be used as early detection of Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia which I find fascinating, this idea that instead of a tissue sample, the sample is a product of your brain, a writing sample or a speech sample. It's a really novel and interesting idea for early detection of dementia. And early detection of neurodegenerative diseases in general is one of these holy grails in medicine because the earlier we can detect it, the less brain tissue that has been affected by the neuropathology and the more opportunities we have to intervene. There are some early data that suggest that if there's no restrictions in place 
on a topic, someone with a lower propositional idea density, which is a slightly different calculation what we're talking about. I'm not going to go into the details of that right now. But suffice to say, this lower propositional idea density is associated with an increased risk of developing Alzheimer's dementia. So what goes into developing strong idea density in people? It isn't clear. One study I reviewed for this podcast, they actually didn't find a correlation between higher levels of education and increased idea density in writing. And they suggested that idea density and education actually represent different aspects of cognitive reserve or measure different ways in which the brain shows us the cognitive reserve that it has in any one individual. So at this point, you're probably wondering about, in addition to education, what are some other things that are thought to or have been shown to improve cognitive reserve? These are sometimes called, in the research, cognitive leisure activities. The things that you do with your brain that seem to improve your cognitive reserve over time. And there's seven activities that get used in research to measure this when they're looking to see how much people are doing of these activities that are thought to be helpful. Here are the seven activities on this list. And these are the ones that you want to be thinking about. And I bet there's some here that you're going to think, oh, I love that. I want to do more of that in my life. Make a note of those ones. Here we go. Number one, reading books. Reading books. Number two, reading magazines or newspapers. Number three, producing art. And they go on to list some examples of that, like painting or poetry or dance. Producing non-artistic writing, so journaling, uh, writing newsletters, writing essays, having a blog. Number five, playing a musical instrument. I like that this is another form of art, but they pulled it out. I suspect they pulled it out because of just the amount of richness to that experience of having to learn and maintain all of those abilities to play a musical instrument and then producing music and what that must take for the brain. That whole area is fascinating. And the brain on music, we've got to do a podcast on the brain on music. Number six, playing structured games like poker, card games, board games, Scrabble, that kind of stuff, crossword puzzles, the things that you've probably thought of as the more cognitive reserve well-known building activities out there. These are the ones that often get discussed in the common literature and in magazines and so forth will be that you should do more crossword puzzles or you should do Sudoku to get your brain to work a bit better. They put that in these leisure activities, this laundry list. And number seven is participating in hobbies like gardening and model building web design. These are the ones I specifically listed, but there's lots of hobbies that we can think of that are going to be in this category. Things that you like to do that are fun and that engage your brain. I was looking at some MS research around cognitive reserve and how folks with MS can be helping themselves out in that area despite having a progressive neurological condition. In the MS studies, they found that folks that engaged in more of these activities appeared to have 
protection against cognitive impairment over time. So this goes back to the same old use it or lose it. One thing I don't like about that phrase is that it suggests that we must suffer to benefit, at least when we're talking about it with exercise. That's often what I hear in that message is that you've got to use it or lose it, which means you've got to suffer or you're going to lose your abilities. And I don't think that's really true when you look at brain health and these seven activities. I mean, they're fun, right? Like, I love reading books. I love reading magazines and newspapers. I journal almost every day because I find it really rewarding. These are fun things to do with your brain. So a lot of what gets considered as leisure, cognitive leisure, are things that people do for fun. I mean, most people who really get into gardening love gardening. People who get into dancing love dancing. So they're the things that you love. And they might be things that you imagine, oh, this is what I do when I get a break, or this is what I do when I'm going to go on vacation, or this is what I'm going to do when I retire. So this is your official invitation to bring more of these things into your life right now. Think of them as your pre-treatment for the potential risk that because you're alive, you might get cognitive impairment. So what can we do? We can do some more fun things in our lives. That's actually good for your brain. To review today's episode, we talked about cognitive reserve. This is the brain's thinking capacity, which is based upon the number and health of the connections between the neurons in the brain that allows one to improvise and use different pathways to perform a cognitive task. That's my own personal definition. Just It's a combination of many definitions, but that's my personal one. I think it works. We stress the importance of using your brain in a variety of ways to build cognitive reserve. Again, what you use, you myelinate, the nerdy hypothesis. And then we looked at the Nunn study and established that it is consistent with other research that shows that education is correlated with improved late-life cognition. We also went on to understand that measures of cognitive reserve, like idea density, which was looked at in the Nunn study, that this may be useful in understanding who is at risk for Alzheimer's dementia and other dementias into the future. And then we looked at those seven main areas of cognitive leisure activities that are thought to support cognitive reserve and that have been shown in research, including in MS research, to be associated with preserved cognition over time. And I will repeat the invitation that most of those things are fun and you could probably do with a little more fun in your life. How often is medicine fun? I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm thrilled, so thrilled that you're here. I want you to feel free to reach out at thewellnurturedbrain at gmail.com. Send me your episode ideas, feedback, suggestions on how I can make this show even better. And we have some juicy episodes coming up on The Well Nurtured Brain, so stay tuned. I'll see you soon. And until then, be kind to your mind. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Well Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and share this podcast. Spread the word about brain health to your friends and family. They'll thank you. The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening.